Psalm 51, I will just want to read, uh, let's read from verse 1 to verse 12 this morning and, uh, and then kind of make our way through this um, passage. Hear the word of the Lord today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all of my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Father, thank you for your word. As we turn to it now, make it live. For it is the living, eternal word of God. Satisfy the hunger in our soul, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we assume a lot more than we should. Uh, this past Monday evening, I just had the, a great joy of spending an hour, hour and a half with a individual who wanted to know more about what it means to be a Christian. Those are some of the most beautiful conversations one can have, and you might say, well, Paul, you get a lot of those on Sundays, and that's true, but there's something different about sitting across the table with somebody who wants to know why you're a Christian, wants to know what it means to follow Jesus. And as we chatted over a cup of coffee, and uh, I responded to questions and shared the joy of my life with this young individual... I realized that I was being very careful in the language that I was using. I realized that there were phrases that are full of content and meaning for me, but had no content or meaning for this individual. I was very much aware of the language that I was using because they didn't have the background that I had. And so as we were talking, I was praying, God, help me to speak clearly and carefully. I was driving home. I was saying, God... I need to think this through even more carefully so that I can say it more precisely and more clearly next time. And uh, I have the joy of hopefully meeting with this individual again in another week or so and investigating in more the faith. And what a joy it is to do that. But as I was thinking about Psalm 51, and we've read it today, there are a lot of assumptions behind Psalm 51. And for those of us who maybe have grown up in the church and uh, walked with God for a while, we understand the assumptions behind this psalm. But I thought for the sake of some of us maybe who need to be refreshed on these or who need to understand um, what is behind a psalm like, like this, I would talk about four of the assumptions that I think underline this psalm and then only take a few minutes near the end to look at a few of the verses. But one of the main assumptions behind this psalm for which uh, if we don't have this clearly in mind, the psalm makes no sense. It's simply the fact that sin exists. Sin exists. 
And one of the ways that I know sin exists and, uh, is simply this, the wages of sin is death. And as far as I know, that there has never been a person who has not died. There has never been a person born that is still living today that was born a thousand years ago. And so for me, one of the most clear evidences that there is such a thing as sin is the fact that there is death in the world. As God says, the wages of sin is death. A little bit of a long answer, though, to that might go along these lines, and I hear this quite a bit. Um, there are many good people I know who are not Christians. The implication being that, that one um, uh, somehow um, will meet God without ever recognizing their sin or being aware of their sin. I don't deny that there are a lot of good people. I know them. Some of them are my neighbors, and some of them, frankly, are, are better people than I am at certain levels. Um, but the point of the question is not that there are good people in comparison to me or there are bad people in comparison to me. But the issue is, what is the measure of good? What is the standard by which we say somebody is good and somebody is not? Because this has a profound understanding, uh, impact on our understanding of whether or not we think there's such a thing as sin. You see, the scriptures very clearly tell us that the measure of goodness is not self-determined. Nor is it determined by culture or society. Rather, it is a divine standard. God sets the bar of goodness. It is determined by our Creator. And sin is a failure to measure up to the standard that God has set for us. And so what is God's measure of goodness? Well, the most clear way that it's revealed to us is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And that there is the Ten Commandments. In there, we read about how we should worship God. We read there about how we should respond to our parents. We read there about the importance of Sundays. We read there about the importance of how we relate to one another. That is the measure of goodness that God has set before all mankind. And it's not just something that is written in Scripture. It is something that God has written in the hearts of all men. And it's a, it's a summary that is affirmed by Jesus Christ in the Gospels when he's approached by one who says to him, Master, what is the most important commandment of all? And you remember what Jesus responded, don't you? Jesus said, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first measure of goodness. Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second thing Jesus goes on to say is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So that, beloved, is the measure of goodness. And if we fall short of that measure, then we are not good in the eyes of God. See, that's the standard of goodness. And it applies not only to our actions, but it also applies to the thoughts and intents and motives behind our actions. For we know that most of us here might be able to say, well, Paul, I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus would say, if you've ever hated anyone, you have broken that commandment. Many married people here have never committed adultery. But Jesus said, if you have lusted after another woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. So the standard goes not just to acts, it goes to thoughts, intents, and motives in, in us. And so in the light of all of that, then God rightly says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And that's where we come to a passage like Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside together. We have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So that's why it's important for us, loved ones, to teach the law. That's why it's important for us to remind one another, both here from the pulpit, in your homes, in Sunday school class, at youth meetings, that there is such a thing as a standard that God has set for us. Because that standard reveals to us that there is such a thing as sin. So the first assumption behind this psalm, for which it makes no sense whatsoever if it's not true, is that there is such a thing as sin. The second assumption that I think needs to be said is this, is to recognize that I have sinned. Without that conviction, the words of Psalm 51 sound weak and wimpy. I think you and I all know, and we've seen it, people who go through the court system today and who, although convicted of maybe breaking a particular law or uh, having been sentenced to some kind of punishment, they've never come under conviction or admitted that they have been at fault. This ranges from people who have received a traffic ticket and have paid a fine for it to those who have been charged and convicted with the most heinous of crimes, but they remain defiant in their guilt. They never admit to any wrongdoing. They don't accept the standard by which they've been measured, so they don't accept the punishment. They don't accept that they have broken any laws. And in fact, we have groups of people that live in our province who say that they don't need to submit to the laws of the land. They are a law unto themselves. So you will never be convicted of your sin if you don't recognize God's authority over you. And unless we realize and recognize that we have sinned, this psalm is meaningless to us. So the first assumption is there is such a thing as sin. The second assumption is that I have sinned. The third assumption, though, behind this psalm, which I think is profoundly meaningful, is this. Each of us, all mankind, has been created to be in relationship with God, our Creator. Without this assumption, this psalm is personally cathartic at best. See, truth is, from the very beginning, God has created all mankind to be in relationship with Him. We've been created in the image of God so that we might relate to God, so that we might see Him reflected in us, and we might find our joy and fulfillment in relating to the one who has created us. Scriptures are full of relational images. We think of of, of Genesis where we read of the story of Enoch, and it said, Enoch walked with God. Isn't that a profoundly relational term? That, that when you walk with somebody, you know, we, we talk with them, we, we keep in step with them, we share our joys, we, we share our highs, we share our lows. And so we read that Enoch walked with God. 